As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I am sitting here today with the CEO of the Greater Cincinnati and Dayton Region American Red Cross, Stephanie Bird. Hello. Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. I know you also serve on many boards, including the local board of Teach for America, a member of the Lynx and the Deltas, and on the board of the Nad Herney Scholarship Trust. You also, we met many years ago when I got involved in what you were doing with early childhood education that ultimately has birthed into Pre-K Works and Cincinnati Preschool Promise and everything that you've done there. Thank you for your leadership there. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. So today we're going to talk a lot about the vulnerability of life success, the opportunities that we all have to lean into our work and create a greater community for those that work with us, around us, and are within our communities. And I know just that greater calling and the hard work that it takes to lead in some of these areas, Mm -hmm. that this is the great example of there was no path. This was the path less traveled and being able to blaze that trail for those that come behind us. And I thank you for being that kind of leader in our community. thank you, Mike. Yeah, it was truly, they say, a labor of love. And when you don't have a roadmap, the beauty is, is that you can create it. The risk is that you create it. Mm -hmm. And I am very fortunate that I was able to take on the leadership of the Success by Six role with United Way um, at a time when our community really was looking for inspirational strategies to address a very difficult time in our community's evolution. Mm -hmm. As I think about the civil unrest that occurred back in 2001 and the amount of angst and anger and the kind of dynamic that pitted members of our community against each other really was a challenging time for us. And with the work that was done through the Cincinnati CAN, Community Action Now, I know this is history at this point, thankfully, but there were some really good strategies that came out of that. Some that are being evaluated today, you know, the community-oriented policing and the consent agreement, and then also success by six. And I don't know that people necessarily make that connection. It was a derivative of the work that was done in the education channel from CAN, but a clear desire to say, hey, let's start with our kids and what's going to put them on the path to success. Hmm. And, you know, not just deal with all of the challenges that came from that shooting and, you know, the outcomes that kids had experienced in terms of their treatment in the justice system, the treatment of African-American men in the justice system, And the fact that kids didn't have hope, they didn't have opportunity, they didn't see a path themselves, and all of those needed to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But by looking at early childhood and saying, let's back up and see how we get children on the right path from the very beginning, it created an opportunity for aspiration. 
And I think we needed it at that time. And there were other good things that came out of that work. But to say that we are going to start with babies and make sure that moms have access to the things that are going to make them good moms and children had access to the experiences that would then be the foundation for their learning really gave us an opportunity to create something good out of a very, very dark and difficult time in our community. Mm. And to be able to be a part of that, one, was important for me because I was really on the verge of leaving the city. You know, I had three children, two African-American little boys at the time and a little girl. And I thought, is this the city that I want for my children? And really thinking about what their future was going to be. And I don't believe in coincidences. I think that I was asked to consider leading the Success by Six work was the purpose that was intended for me at that time, one, to be able to make whatever difference I could make, but also to not flee the situation, but rather, you know, dig in and see what you can do about it. And so I'm glad I did. Um, It was a huge learning opportunity for me, having moved out of the career that I had been involved in for, you know, many, many years, 20 years, to something that I knew about only because I had children, (laughs) because I knew anything about early childhood development, but it gave me the opportunity to learn a lot. So So during that time, you were moving out of a career. What career was that? Sure. So I started in Cincinnati out of graduate school with a master's in health and hospital administration from Xavier and had been at Christ Hospital for a number of years in a variety of administrative roles that led me to create HealthSpan, which was a managed care, hospital-owned, preferred provider organization. And it was the first of its kind in the region, the first hospital-owned preferred provider organization, but one that was created by three otherwise competing entities, Christ Hospital, the Mercies, and the Franciscans at that time. And now the Franciscans and the Mercies are one entity. And it was a really interesting way. It's a startup managed care organization that contracted with self-insured companies and third-party administrators to offer a competitive managed care program to their employees. And so I did that for a few years, and the Health Alliance came about. And I don't know if you'll remember the Health Alliance, but it was a integrated system of hospitals and physicians that included six hospitals, Christ University, St. Luke in Northern Kentucky, Fort Hamilton in Hamilton, and then also Jewish. And then through that, we created a primary care group, which was the alignment of the physicians who were providing primary care services among those hospitals. It was a unbelievable undertaking. Just the mergers, it wasn't a merger, it was a joint, they were mm-hmm. brought together through a joint operating agreement. And seeing the 100-year-old traditions and cultures of those six different institutions come together was amazing, very, very challenging because the Health Alliance was the operating organization and had no history, and yet trying to pull together hospitals that had their own cultures and, you know, as many as 150 years of tradition, that was, you know, a very, very difficult thing to bring together. I had the opportunity to work with the CEO and the leadership team in creating the diversity initiative for the Health Alliance, the change management strategy, you know, work to develop the management development strategy that was intended to create a new culture. 
that was comprised of the culture of these very different organizations. Very, very difficult. Part of that also was bringing together the communications, marketing, and advertising function. Created one, and it was created through bringing together the staffs of the respective hospitals into a single entity. So a merger of those departments serving the hospital needs as well as the needs of this newly created entity. Mm. So a lot of different opportunity, a lot of struggles, a lot of conflict, but all for the better purpose of creating a more streamlined and effective way of delivering services through a, I would say, a intent to better serve the community through a more outcomes-oriented delivery of services. That was the hope. And with the managed care environment being as it was, it was a way to get the hospitals to work together to be more competitive in a very, very difficult environment. Mm. Great, great concept. I think many, many years of success, but in the end, not a successful model, and that's why it's not here today. So I did that for a number of years from the time it began um, back in 1994, I believe it was, until the early 2000s. I went to then work for Drake for a few years, and that's when Success by Six came about. About a year and a half after the civil unrest, the strategic planning for Success by Six had been completed. Jim Zimmerman, who uh, was the chair of Federated, now Macy's Mm -hmm. then, uh, chaired that effort. And again, because I had been on the board of the United Way, I was asked to consider coming to lead it. And so it just so happened that I was looking to do something very different. And uh, again, considering whether or not that was going to be in Cincinnati Mm. and decided to step into something completely different. So the corporate roles that you were in, the complexities, the mergers, the partnerships, the relationship development... Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what I just heard led to you were also involved in the community. Mm-hmm. You were serving on boards. Absolutely. You were accessible. You were leaning into very important conversations. And then that led to, through that leadership, them to tap you to say, we have something, what I would consider in the public sector. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. something in the public sector mm-hmm. that we would like for you to consider to lead. Mm-hmm. And after that long time in your career path and all of the experience you had said, it's a big topic, Stephanie, that yeah. you took on. And you were willing to say, I'm willing to step into that somewhat unknown, completely unknown, Mm -hmm. maybe in some Mm -hmm. cases, Mm -hmm. and willing to do that. And I think a lot of our listeners, you know, may not see themselves there yet, Mm -hmm. or maybe feeling a pull from their own heart to go into something different. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great example. Yeah. And, you know, you make it sound really, really uh, sequential and orchestrated. (laughs) And part of the board participation that I was doing was because of my responsibilities. Mm At the Health Alliance, I worked for the CEO, uh, Jack Cook. He was asked to be on a number of boards, didn't, couldn't be on all of them, so he asked me to do some of them. Great, great experiences that way. The Convention and Visitors Bureau, the United Way, the Port Authority when it was getting started. So some great, great opportunities to learn from other leaders in the community. But that also gave me some visibility that then made it you know, possible for them to come to me and say, hey, you've done this. Would you consider you know, something completely different. And it was a hard, hard decision for me. Despite my concern about where Cincinnati was going at the time, it was walking away from the career that I had come to know and be really comfortable with and would be stepping out of that. I didn't think it was going to be for 14 years, Mm. but it took some soul searching 
but I also knew that I was ready to do something different mm-hmm. and that I was getting restless, one, because of the state of the city, but also because it was time for me to do something else. Mm. I originally aspired to be the CEO of a healthcare organization and did not necessarily see that as being possible from where I sat at that time. And as you look around the country, it's as an African-American female, unless you have a clinical background, it's not necessarily easy to achieve. And so my deciding to go to Success by Six wasn't just, you know, that I was leaving healthcare. It was also recognizing that I was leaving that goal, that career goal that I had established when I chose healthcare as a career and through all of the exposure that I had had over the years to different healthcare organizations and types and management styles, it was something that I saw myself being able to do, but it became clear that that might not be possible in Cincinnati. And also clear that if I moved to success by six, it would be even less possible. So a lot of things going on in my head at that time, but the issue in the city was so great and the appeal of success by six being something that would help it move forward in a positive way. It was so compelling for me at that time that I thought, you know, I benefited myself Mm -hmm. from having children who had experiences and opportunities that put them on a path Mm -hmm. that I didn't have to question that they were going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, they were their their own little persons. They would be who they were going to be, but it wasn't through lack of experience and exposure. And there are so many kids who I knew just from having witnessed what happened in through the civil unrest, who did not have that opportunity. And so being able to be a part of the creation of that movement that was intended to give every child the same opportunity that my kids had, it was like, you know what, this is for me to do. Mm. And it made it much more easy for me to say, you know what, I've gotten as much, I've gotten a lot of skills, built a lot of relationships through what I've been able to do in healthcare. Let's leverage that for the next thing. So that was my thinking at the time. Yeah, I think there's some individuals who have shared and we've covered it in some podcast episodes, both current and will in the future, where we set goals mm-hmm. and we set professional goals. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those professional goals weren't meant to be fully met, but we were being prepared for something bigger, right? And there's many cases where individuals get to the top, and we've had some of those stories mm-hmm. where executives have reached the top and then realized this isn't what I thought it would be, mm-hmm. or maybe I missed the path that was left and I went right because that was what was most natural Mm. and what was most comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you were willing to step out into something that's less comfortable. Yeah. And I'm sure there was some reconciliation with yourself in that goal that you had set out where you had to. And I think you just shared the need was so great and so prominent that I really wanted to do this for the greater good. But you also had to recognize that I'm leaving that path that I thought I was going to pursue my entire Mm -hmm. career. And that takes time, I'm certain, and emotion to wrestle through. Yeah, and I had been wrestling through that. Having been at the Health Alliance and seeing the challenges that the organization struggled with, kind of the culture clashes, the environment itself, and where healthcare was going continues to be an issue the cost pressures, the reimbursement pressures, now the political pressures of the healthcare industry became more of a a stressor. The environment wasn't as focused on 
what are we doing for the community and what are we doing for our patients? It was more how do we wrestle with the business of being in healthcare Mm -hmm. out of necessity. And that particularly was the case in my role. So, you know, wrestling with that, seeing the community, it took an opportunity like Success by Six for me to realize that you can take what you've learned and apply it elsewhere mm-hmm. and make a difference in the community. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't believe in coincidences. I think it was the thing that I was supposed to do at that time. Mm-hmm. And it caused me to come to grips with a lot of the things that had been kind of swirling around in my head at that same moment. Mm-hmm. And very grateful yeah. that it happened that way. And I, you know, from our perspective, we see individuals, see initiatives out in the world today and think, oh, that's great. That just got here. Right. But you said 14 years. So today when we walk into our elementary school and see a poster about preschool promise Mm -hmm. or pre-K works, that took 14 years of hard work, Mm -hmm. dedication, passion, resources, people and leaders like yourself, Stephanie, that let you led this way. Mm. And now over the next decade, over the next 14 years, let's see how big of an impact it will continue to have. And that'll be 28 years in, believe it or Mm. not. But just kind of thinking through things that way, sometimes Mm -hmm. we so quickly think, oh, that just became, I've only been involved, I think, for three and a half. Mm. And it was still so far along when I joined the effort Mm -hmm. to really elevate and amplify the messages in our community. And we talked with episode, there's been many episodes we've been talking about early childhood. I think episode four, we talked with Tim Hanner, who's now with Children, Inc., as a part of Navigo. Episode 14 was with Shiloh Turner and Florence Mm. Malone. Mm. Um, Episode, I believe it was 17, was Steve Schiffman. We talked about conscious capitalism. One of the points, and you hit on it as well, Steve brought up in his episode, you know, I was asking him, Steve, why are you involved in so much of this hard work? And you're a CEO of a very Mm -hmm. successful mid-market company with the goal, we hope our listeners today will take away and say, well, that's me too right? I'm involved or I'm not involved, but I'm leading a $340 million or $30 million or $5 million organization or a multi-billion dollar organization. And I want to get more involved. And Steve's comment was that I recognize how privileged my children were Mm. having the resources that they had and the education that they had. Mm -hmm. And not every child is like mine. And the equity inequity components in society mm-hmm. is a big calling of why he gets involved to take in and I know why Julie's involved in adopt a class mm-hmm. and and so many of our guests have the same passion for others. Dan Hurley mentioned you can't become fully human until you somewhat get involved in the public sector whether through volunteering or taking and also referencing you can't become fully human until you recognize what it feels like to walk in other shoes. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about the component with your own children. Yes. Knowing that they've had the opportunities that they've had. Mm-hmm. How do you see our community wrestling with this topic of equity, inequity, racial divide, mm-hmm. cultural divide? Mm-hmm. Where can we go from here? What mm-hmm. can be some inspiration that you can share with us? It's a great question. And it is a significant and deep issue. Not just here, but in our country. All over the world. All over the world. And I guess the good news is that we are increasingly aware of it Mm. and being willing to have a conversation about 
where we are. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Cincinnati specifically and the number of conversations that we're having around child poverty and now understanding family-centered solutions to poverty as the United Way has focused, it is encouraging that we are having the conversation, but we have to be mindful that the solutions go well beyond clearly the conversation, but putting money on the table to solve the problem. It's necessary. The agencies that, that support families that are struggling and children who are struggling is necessary as a fix for where they are at that time. We've got a history of having created an uneven playing field. Mm -hmm. And it has been handed down through the systems that we have created. And we have to rethink those systems if we really are going to get people on the same playing field. And those systems have cascaded into other problems for those who have not had equitable treatment from the beginning. And so when you look at incarceration rates, when you look at the number of people who are in poverty and who they are racially, when you look at the jobs that people have and what it takes to put food on the table or to get to work from day to day, these are systemic issues that have been created over time. And so it is great that we have the programs and services that can provide remedy for the issues today. But what are we doing to look at the systems that have been created, how that has led to inequity in how people are treated and how they experience the life in America or their ability to achieve the American dream? That's the biggest challenge. In the United States, it certainly is one that if we want people to participate in our robust and growing economy, we need to be thinking about how we address those systems issues. Mm -hmm. So we're making progress in terms of the conversation. I think we have a lot more convincing to do of people who may not believe that equity and inequity are issues, and that's because their experiences have not exposed them mm -hmm. to so many people who have struggled with mm -hmm. those factors. I'm very fortunate that while my mom was a single mom, she got an education she didn't graduate from college until the same year that my sister graduated from high school, but she was bound and determined. She divorced when I was two because of circumstances of abuse that led her to not continue in that relationship that then forced her to leave school and not finish her degree until many, many years later. But her message to us all along the way as we were growing up was, you are going to college. You are going to behave in a way that represents our family well. You will be respectful of me and adults, and I'm going to be there for you. You know, And she sewed my clothes and my sister's clothes and sacrificed a lot so that we would have a leg up as we became adults. Not everybody has that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the only opportunity, the reason we had that opportunity is because my grandparents gave us a place to live when she decided to divorce. We have to have grandparents who have that ability. And so 
if you look at what people have not had access to because of the circumstances of their ancestors, we have to rethink how we create that level playing field so that the children of today who did not have that foundation have whatever that substitute for a foundation is. That's why the preschool promise in my mind is so important. It does level the playing field. The work of success by six, bringing awareness to the importance of the early years is critical because people think that those years aren't as critical. They're expendable and they really aren't because that's when the brain develops, the experience that shape a child's energy and excitement for learning happens. And in the absence of that, if they don't have the grandmothers and the mothers who know how to provide that support, they end up being in a position of not being as likely to succeed. It doesn't write them off completely, but it certainly makes it more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I was able to do through Success by Six was because of the inequities that we have in our community. And the fact that I was able to benefit from a family who, although not wealthy in money, in resources, certainly in understanding the importance of education and being focused and, you know, looking at what it takes to be successful. Stephanie, thank you so much for what you just shared. I'm going to unpack a few of these points a little deeper. One of the aspects of the Talent Magnet Institute is helping leaders and individuals reframe what success looks like. We say reframe success in leadership mm-hmm. and helping individuals understand that it's not just about work. We're not just talking about work in these episodes. We're not just talking about people practices. We're talking about relationships, healthy relationships. And a big aspect of what you just discussed is investing in and creating healthy relationships mm-hmm. and work and community and life, life for us is defined as personal life. Like we need to be successful personally. We need to help others be successful personally Mm -hmm. to really have a well-rounded definition of leadership. Mm -hmm. And with the hopes and goals and aspirations that people who listen, and again, most of our audience are business owners, our business leaders, our executives, and that they can go back and say, wow, you know, I've never thought about that. Mm. You know, in episode 25, when we spoke with Janice Urbanic and we really broke down workforce populations or episode three, where we spoke with Shaquille Ahmed and we were talking about knowing your neighbor and episode one, where we were talking with Dr. Karen Bankston, mm-hmm. these episodes where individuals and org- I've had organizations and leaders already say to me that your podcast is hitting on topics I've never really thought about. Hmm. There are individuals who aren't reading the local news like we might, like I might, or staying in contact with the social needs and barriers of our community. Mm-hmm. And th- with the hope that they will start leaning into this, that they'll hear an episode like this and say, I never quite thought about that mm. um, mm-hmm. in the impact that I have. Sure. You mentioned that you know, that the zero to five years that are not expendable, that that's where what 90% of the brain is developed and your emotional synapses Mm -hmm. connect and how you respond. And I was speaking recently with Rick Hulenfeld at Children Inc. And we were talking about the all pro dad program that I'm involved with, where we're helping eradicate fatherlessness and Mm -hmm. engaging men to step up, whether they're in a formal father role 
or a grandfather role, mm-hmm. you know, or they're in a stepfather role, or they're just a male role model in a child's life. And Rick was sharing, we were talking about like, you know, at the early ages, we just need to uphold our children. And if you grew up in a family that didn't have that, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. But they're teaching, like, it's just important to know how to feed your child and sing to your child and embrace your child mm-hmm. and express those emotions. And that really gives a child from zero to five security that they're cared for, they're loved, and they're important. Mm-hmm. And they may never know. Someone who hasn't experienced that may never realize why at 37 years old, they still can't find their place in the world mm-hmm. and the impact mm-hmm. we can oh all God. have. Absolutely. Um, the other, the understanding differences and respecting those differences, you know, individuals who we look at our own scenarios, the employees that we have, we have an opportunity to understand our people, whether that's our family, our friends, our community, more than most, right? If you're an employer or you're a leader, you do have an opportunity to really understand the meaningful impact that individual or those 250 individuals that work for you, what they really want out of life yes, and where they've come from. You know, I know in the discussion, in a podcast episode with Priya Klosik, we talked, and Janet Reed, she talked about, Dr. Janet Reed, we see that we only really effectively know 5 to 10% of what really motivates someone or really understand that that says we're like an iceberg, as Dr. Janet mm-hmm, Reed put it, mm-hmm. and the other 90% matters. Mm-hmm. And as employers, we have the opportunity to understand the other 90% of individuals' right, lives right. as much as they're willing to give us. Right. But think about by doing this, you ultimately, the Talent Magnet Institute, we believe you become a talent magnet when your employees know you care about them so deeply personally and professionally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you can help impact if they show up tomorrow and how they show up tomorrow. Yes. Um, I, I, I so believe that. And it takes an investment of time. And one of the things that we don't necessarily pay enough attention to is listening and being accessible so that employees can learn that you do care and learn that it's not just about their particular job, but who they are and what makes them who they are is what allows them to be their best self on the job. And in the pace in which organizations work, we often make our employee relationships transactional and not relational. And I think the successful organization is the one that knows how to balance that. Certainly there are things in the job description that your team members have to do. But when you do that with having formed a relationship, to the extent that people will allow you to do that, you're going to get, I believe, more out of the transactions that you need them to fulfill than if you just use a transactional approach. Absolutely. So, But it takes time and it takes a level of patience. And the culture of the organization and the mission of the organization has to support it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the nonprofit arena is, I should say not-for-profit arena, is so attractive to me. The mission of the organization, uh, the ones that I've had the benefit of working with, 
allow people to live out their passion and gives you the opportunity to create relationships mm-hmm. that are more meaningful and thus productive than some environments might. Mm-hmm. And so it has worked for my personality type and my leadership style and my need to want to know people who I work with on a more personal level. Not that I'm taking them out to dinner or going out and you know socializing, but just knowing what makes you who you are yeah. and what's your story. Yeah. My guess is one of the questions that you might ask, certainly we ask leaders that are in the nonprofit sector, is why do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. motivates you to do what you do, sure. and whether you're in not-for-profit or for-profit? And I hope there's several listeners, hundreds or thousands of listeners to this episode that goes, well, I want that. Mm-hmm. I want to be so mission-driven, purpose-driven, and I want all of my employees to align. But in the nonprofit sector, to your point, you start interviewing a lot of the individuals, as we do, the executives, and ask them the same question. Most of them have a story. Mm that affected them personally or their family personally Mm -hmm. that's led them all to this body of work. Mm -hmm. So you interview seven to nine leaders of a nonprofit and not-for-profit. Most of them have a personal story or been personally impacted that called them into this work. Mm -hmm. And just imagine if all of our for-profits had the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because as I've described with Success by Six, that truly is what called me into thinking about how I could make a difference based on a very difficult time in our community's history. And in doing that, it allowed me to see what I, not only what brings me joy, but what I think I can give to other people in making our community aware of those precious years Mm. and what we might be able to do for others who deserve absolutely what my kids deserve. Mm. My reason for going into healthcare was because of what I saw in my home with my grandmother being a nurse, you know, and her constantly giving back and her talking about the little babies that she was taking care of and the struggles that their families had with the babies being so sick and in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it just made me want to be a part of that. Started out with pre-med as a major and organic chemistry and I just didn't like each other. Mm -hmm. And so I decided not to go that route but I still had the passion for healthcare. And Mm -hmm. so I think there are those things that you encounter along your life that help you understand who you are and what you're good at and what you enjoy. And the ability to bring together what you're good at and your joy is just a perfect combination. So share with our listeners a little bit the journey you're on now. You're now the CEO of the Greater Cincinnati Dayton Region American Red Cross. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked a little bit about standing in your truth and authentic leadership and being true to self. Mm -hmm. What impact are you hoping to have in Mm. this particular role? Sure. My, you know, there's, I'm learning more and more about the impact that you're now stepping into with Mm -hmm. everything that's going on Mm -hmm. in our community and our nation. Right. So can you share a little bit about the current journey that you're on? Sure. So the American Red Cross in this country dates back to 1881. So it's been around for a long, long time. And the organization has evolved and adapted to the needs of society as society has changed. And yet it is one of those organizations that has been true to its original mission, which is to alleviate human suffering and to mobilize communities and resources to help our fellow human being. And so obviously that mission is one that resonates with me just because of 
you know, my interest in how we can help other people. And in taking on this responsibility, one, you know, I hearken back to my original interest in being the CEO of an organization that serves others. And being in this role allows me to do that through a mission-driven organization that really is focused on helping people when they need you the most. The work is probably not as clear as the name and the logo. When you see the American Red Cross, I think most people think positive things about it. Mm -hmm. And each one in each community is different based on the resources in that community. Ours is very focused on basically four lines of service. We have a disaster preparedness and response service, one that is services to armed forces, an international services division, and then the work that we do to recruit, retain, and recognize volunteers, because 90% of the work that we do is done through volunteers. And within all of that, there are a number of different programs. And my hope is that we can introduce this region to their Red Cross. We've got a beautiful building that you see on 71, but I don't know that people are aware of what we do and the work that we do to help people when they're at their worst, whether it's if their home has caught on fire and they need someplace to go, someone to give them a hug, or they've experienced a flood and they need help to mitigate the damages of that, that's where we step up or it's first responders who have been out with fires or in the case of the recent Fifth Third shooting, have been on the job trying to manage that situation, being there to support their needs. It is very much a how do we give to those who need us most. And I don't know that our community recognizes that. So part of the appeal for me is how do we reintroduce the Red Cross for what it does here in this community? How do we make it more attractive for people as a career opportunity, either because they are looking to be employed or they're looking to do something more with their time that gives back? In our region, we have about 1,900, up to 2,000 volunteers who help us do that work. And it's a great way. So if you've chosen a path that is more in the corporate sector and you want to give back, we have virtually every opportunity to do that through the Red Cross. And we rely on that. And I want to make people more aware of what those opportunities are mm. of all spectrums. And because we serve people from all, you know, all walks of life. And we need volunteers who understand their cultures, understand their needs, and can respond in a way that's sensitive to that. Stephanie, we have a neighbor who I remember when we moved into our neighborhood seven, eight years ago, I asked, oh, so are you retired? And her answer was, no, I'm a volunteer with American Red <laughs> I Cross. I love that. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, tell me more. And she said, well, at night's. If there's a fire and a family needs someone, mm. I go and I comfort the family. Mm. And that's part of my role. And she's a comforter. I mean, yes. you meet her, she throws all of the welcome parties for new neighbors in our neighborhood <laughs> and all of this. And um, and I just remember her responding that way. Yeah. That, you know, no, I'm not retired. I'm a volunteer with the American I Red Cross. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, so there are individuals. And I had to ask, oh, tell me more, because I thought that's everybody who works with the American Red Cross are all the corporate, right? They're mm. working for corporate. Mm. And she was explaining the volunteer nature of what that means. And that, yes, I do get a call at 2 a.m. and say there's a family who's lost their home and we need you to come to this address and be there for the family or, you know, or meet at this location to 
just get to know the family. And so a very nurturing person. And boy, what a great role that she found. It's, Um, it's, It's amazing. And the compassion that people have is absolutely necessary. Having people who have a mental health background who can help with the trauma of being displaced, whether it's from a fire or flood, or in more recent cases, the hurricanes that have hit our coasts, our volunteers are all over the place. Mm -hmm. They may want to drive our emergency response vehicles to one of those incidents. And so the key is that you're able to give back and help people when they need you, and the skill sets that you bring can be put to use. And so, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity for connecting our community to some of the work that needs to be done. We measure the number of homes that have been made safer because of the fire alarms, the smoke alarms that we have installed. And it's not just the alarm, but it's creating a home escape plan and a fire safety plan Mm -hmm. so that people know that, you know, there are things that I can do to make sure I don't have a fire, But if I have one, what do I need to do? Like never go back into the home and making sure that you've got things ready to go in the event that you have one. Educating children on how to educate their parents about home safety. And so that's all a part of, you know, our work. And I think something that our community, knowing the giving nature of our community can get engaged in. So mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this. And then there is those hurricanes that you yeah, get to deploy to. And I had the uh, benefit of going to Hurricane Florence. And, you know, one of my colleagues says, we get to do this every day. Mm -hmm. And when you are deployed to a place that's been stricken by a hurricane, where water is in places that you never expect to see water, and you see cars literally floating on what would have been a street, and recognize that people can't be there and are now sheltered, it is the most humbling thing that you can Mm -hmm. experience. And to be able to hug them, to find out what their needs are, to make sure that we're responsive to the fact that they may have medical issues. There's nothing greater out of a otherwise difficult situation that you can experience. So I love the fact that I can get really, really close to the need, but also have the responsibility for leading it. And it's just a great combination of grassroots kind of work while also having some leadership opportunity. That's wonderful. Stephanie, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you to your team and all of your thousands of volunteers that support the American Red Cross and the roles that you play in our community and the things that you've done, the foundations that Mm -hmm. you've laid, we're very grateful. I'm very appreciative to have been involved in a couple of small things and appreciate the journey that we're all on together Together. to make our community great and our nation great with all of that. So Stephanie, thank you for joining us today in the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Enjoyed it. And thank you for leading well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. A toxic work culture can be costlier than you can imagine, but hard to identify. Go to talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash toxic culture to learn seven signs that there's something you need to fix in your workplace. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. 
Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.